This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Latinos are sought after this election year. As their numbers grow, new interest groups have come courting. Coming up, why environmental groups are holding citizenship workshops. First, CPR's Rachel Estabrook reports there's a conservative movement to draw in Latinos beyond the 2016 election. On an otherwise quiet neighborhood street in Aurora, about a dozen volunteers huddle in small groups. Dan and our team will take Kenton. They're all Latino, mostly millennials. They wear matching gray t-shirts with the message, Freedom Drives Progress. Libre on three. One, two, three. Libre! Let's go. They're with Libre, where Daniel Garza is the executive director. The election season is an important time when people are paying attention. And so we kind of want to leverage that opportunity to drive a conversation on certain issues and policies. Libre canvases almost every night in Metro Denver. Young people out tonight say they like the idea of empowering their community. They hold tablets that show maps with dots on Latino households. Hello, is this our Diego residence? Peña, are you Marie Peña? Hi. Mary Peña is an elderly woman with short gray hair and glasses. Libre's Isabel Antiveros asks her question scripted on the tablet. The U.S. government is collecting more of your tax dollars and spending more of your hard-earned money than ever before. Do you think that the government and politicians should cut spending or increase spending? Cut it, of course. (laughs) Then Antiveros talks about the growing national debt. And she gets Peña's email address, which goes into Libre's vast database. Daniel Garza says she's one of five million Latinos Libre is trying to reach nationally this year. At the end of the day, a organization's influence is as powerful as the size of its community, right? Si uno tiene pueblo, um, and if you have that community behind you and they agree with you, then the politicians who are elected to represent us have to listen to us or we'll remove them. Garza helped found Libre in 2011 after working in the George W. Bush White House. Now the group is in 11 states, and it's officially nonpartisan. But as Garza suggests, it does get political. In 2014, Libre ran ads against Colorado's then-incumbent U.S. Senator Mark Udall, a Democrat who was up for re-election. One in four U.S. Hispanics live in poverty. And what do we get from Senator Mark Udall? Empty promises. The ads also ran in Spanish. Garza is unsure if Libre will target Colorado's Democratic U.S. Senator Michael Bennett, who's up for re-election this year. Much of the group's funding comes from Freedom Partners, part of Charles and David Koch's network. That draws criticism from other groups, like the left-leaning Latino Victory Project. It wrote that Libre uses, quote, deceiving tactics to advance the interests of its billionaire supporters. Garza rejects the idea that Libre is a, quote, Koch front group. For the longest time, the Latino left would criticize the conservative side for not engaging Latinos, for not doing outreach to Latinos. And now that we are, they criticize us. You you can't have it both ways. Conservatives' new focus on Latinos is not surprising. They're expected to be a third of Colorado's population by 2040. And Libre takes a long-term approach. That's according to Theda Scotchpole. She's a professor of government and sociology at Harvard. The Libre Initiative in our research uses very creative methods to do soft outreach, to just build ties that can pay off in the future. That soft outreach includes English courses, health checkups, and backpack giveaways for kids. Garza says those services can help Latinos get jobs and find success, one of Libre's goals. And the events give Libre an audience for their messages. 
The morning after canvassing, Garza speaks in Spanish at a Libre brunch. He talks about his personal history as the son of farm workers, about self-determination and the need to limit government influence. There's also a half hour of singing about God and how lucky they are to live in the U.S. People sway their arms and sing along. It's like a church service. And these events can build trust in the long term. But this year, the presumptive Republican nominee for president looms. Daniel Garza brushes off the idea that Donald Trump's rhetoric about Latinos makes his efforts any harder. My job isn't to elect Republicans. My job is to drive ideas. We have recruited thousands of volunteers. We have sold out events. So we're pleased with the kind of reaction we're getting from the Latino community. Libre has been around for five years, and Harvard's researchers say it's too early to tell whether the group's strategies will work to make the country and its leaders more conservative. I'm Rachel Estabrook, CPR News. And so that is how some conservatives are courting Latinos. Now, CPR's Megan Verlee with the story of an environmental organization trying to win votes by creating more Latino voters. It's a Saturday morning, and dozens of immigrants fill out paperwork at cafeteria tables inside a Commerce City Elementary School. They've come here with one goal, to become U.S. citizens. At this citizenship clinic, would-be Americans get help filling out forms and copying the relevant documents. Hilda Nisete, who helped organize this event, says becoming a citizen can be a bureaucratic headache. A lot of the community cannot afford to hire a $1,000 lawyer to kick in through the process. So that's why where we come in, Protegete and Conservation Colorado, to be able to remove those barriers for our community. Conservation Colorado is an environmental organization. Protegete is the group's Latino outreach arm, which launched a few years ago. Nisete says many Latin American immigrants are concerned about protecting the environment. But when it comes to being part of the decision-making process at the table, that has been a difficulty. How do we bring our community to be able to have their voices heard? By having more of them able to vote, for one thing, and encouraging them to consider environmental issues when they do. But Conservation Colorado isn't pushing that message much at this stage, other than a few volunteers in Protegete t-shirts and one banner on the cafeteria wall you'd never know an environmental group was involved at all. In fact, none of the citizenship applicants I spoke with were really aware of Conservation Colorado's role. Now that you tell me, it's a little surprising, I guess. Eddie Orozco arrived in the U.S. from Mexico as a child and got his green card five years ago. He says it's taken a while to save up the nearly $700 needed just to apply for citizenship. As for why an environmental group wants to help him do that? I can't really see a direct correlation as to why they would, but uh, thanks, you know. Here's one potential reason Conservation Colorado is interested in more Latino voters. They tend to vote for Democrats. Conservation Colorado is officially nonpartisan, but its parent organization, the League of Conservation Voters, almost exclusively supports Democratic candidates. Conservation Colorado wants its citizenship workshops to be the start of a long-term relationship with these future voters. The next step is to invite them to take part in community activism workshops. The classes include some of the civics knowledge needed to pass the citizenship test. But they also teach immigrants to become advocates for environmental issues. Nusete says one goal is to make the connection between big concerns like climate change and local issues, like air pollution. It's not just polar bears and ice caps. It's really talking about our community, environmental justice, and how people are being affected. 
And when it comes to those issues, some polls show Latino voters are actually more interested than the general population. But political science professor and pollster Adrian Pantoja says the environmental movement has been slow to realize that. We asked Latinos if they've ever been contacted by an environmental organization. And there, large numbers, over 80 percent of them said they had never been contacted by any environmental groups. Pantoja teaches at Pitzer College in Southern California. He also works for the polling firm Latino Decisions. Last year, an environmental organization hired the company to survey Hispanic voters on their feelings about the environment. One of the reasons why environmental groups have missed Latinos is because of this perception that they are concerned with other issues like immigration, education, crime. In that respect, the League of Conservation Voters is ahead of the game. Protejete is one of four state-level Latino outreach programs the organization sponsors. The League does not have to disclose who's funding it, and it doesn't. But factcheck.org has traced some of its money back to deep-pocketed liberal donors. Protejete says it has helped around 200 people apply for citizenship this year, with the goal that they'll be able to vote by November. Waiting in line to start her immigration paperwork, Denver resident Grisela Garcia says this election is her motivation, too. Garcia says she wants to vote this year to counter what she sees as negative depictions of Hispanics in the presidential campaign. Conservation Colorado hopes that when Garcia and other aspiring citizens do finally make it to the ballot box this fall, their choices won't just benefit certain candidates— but the environmental cause as a whole. I'm Megan Verlee, CPR News. When we come back, Rachel and Megan join us to talk about how outreach to Latino voters has gotten more nuanced. The program continues on Colorado Public Radio. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. As we've heard, political forces on the left and right are courting Latino voters in Colorado. CPR's Megan Verlee and Rachel Esterbrook are with me now to share more of what they learned reporting these stories. Welcome to you both. Hi, Ryan. Hey, Ryan. Uh, Rachel, the groups that you both profiled certainly aren't the only ones trying to reach Latino voters in Colorado. That's right. Um, So are the political parties, some candidates and other interest groups besides just these two. Megan, why are Latino voters so important here? Well, basically, they make up a big part of the population. And historically, they've had a relatively low turnout. So groups see uh, an area where they can get new people out to support them. Uh, And both sides feel like they can appeal to this constituency, even though the Latino vote in general has trended uh, Democratic in recent cycles, 75 percent voted for Obama. There is a feeling that they're not completely locked down to one party. Remember, after Mitt Romney's defeat four years ago, the Republican Party was doing a lot of soul searching around how do we get more Latinos on our side? And that is a process that's been sort of upended with Donald Trump's candidacy and and some of the things he said about uh, Latinos and about uh, sort of uh, Latin America in general. And with this, like a lot of things, Donald Trump is a wild card. A lot of Dems are assuming that Trump will drive Latinos out to the polls in November to to vote against him. But uh, no one really knows how to count on that at this point. And I want to point out that we talk about Latino voters. I kind of put that in Mm. air quotes here. But of course, they're not a homogenous group. And campaigns and organizations seem to be getting more savvy about that. Yeah, more nuanced. What do you mean? Well, both Megan and I heard this in our reporting. So Hillary Clinton's campaign, for example, told me that they have a special initiative aimed at mujeres or women. Um, Conservatives also, of course, want to win over women. But they're 
They're also targeting young, college-going adults who are Latino, entrepreneurs who are Latino, that sort of thing. What do we know about different groups of Latinos as voters, Megan? Well, it's not just uh, who you are as a, an ethnic group, but where you're from, uh, country of origin, and when you arrived in the U.S. Huh. Uh, one thing I've heard is that Colorado proportionally has a lot of Latino families that have been in the United States for generations, actually, some who have been here before Colorado was part of the United States, when it was part of Mexico. Uh, and those multi-generational families tend to vote more along socioeconomic lines than ethnic ones. Excuse me. So in particular, uh, if it's a working class family, they've tended in recent years to become more sympathetic to Republican candidates similar to working class whites. Uh, and in a year where you have a Republican presidential candidate who's been making really major inroads with the white working class vote, the question is uh, whether those Latino families uh, will go in that same direction or whether they will uh, be alienated about some of what he's saying about more recent arrivals. And conservatives also think they have a good chance to get through to very new immigrants. Um, so one of the researchers I spoke with at Harvard, um, her name is Angie Bautista Chavez. She's a Ph.D. candidate. She talked to me about Libre, that group I profiled, and uh, we spoke over Skype. They're connecting this narrative of you came to this country because you have fled um, governments that were so big that they imploded and they infringed on individual rights of people. And so it's kind of combining the immigrant narrative with conservative political values. Right. So you have these newly arrived immigrants. They're generally open-minded. They might not have preformed political allegiances in the U.S. And the, taking it one step further, this is where Harvard's researchers I spoke with say that the soft outreach that Libre is doing, these events to do GED training, stuff like that, can be particularly effective. Um, because while the group is nonpartisan, um, it does get political. And these events that they have build trust. And they give Libre an opportunity to then introduce more political messages. Um, and where, whereas you may think that people only seek out groups that reflect some pre-held beliefs that we have, um, that anyone has. Instead, they're saying that ideologies and political preferences can form after you become part of a group. And Rachel, I think this is so interesting because I think it's the nexus uh, between your story on Libre, which is sort of free market conservative, and my story on Protegete, which is an environmental group. Both are trying to build those ties before really pushing their message out there. They, they're building trust before getting to the heart of their uh, of their purpose. And I think that's very interesting. Well, Rachel, you also looked into what the parties are doing to reach Latino voters. What did you hear from the GOP? Well, as Megan mentioned, Donald Trump definitely presents a challenge. Um, his campaign did not answer my request for an interview, and the National Republican Party didn't make anyone available to talk about Latino outreach in particular. But it and the state parties are definitely focused on this group. Um, I talked with a businessman named Jerry Natividad, who served on a Latino advisory board for the national GOP. And um, that board is part of a multi-year Republican effort to reach out to Latinos. And the Democrats have a similar effort, I'll say. But um, Natividad said Republicans have what he called troops spread out on the Western Slope in southern Colorado, the metro area, really all around the state. They are active in attending as many uh, Hispanic community activities as they possibly can attend throughout the entire state. So if there's a Hispanic Chamber of Commerce function, uh, whether it's from a church perspective, school perspective, whatever the case may be, they are now engaged with that. 
And this is Megan here. I, I want to add that Jerry Natividad, who we just heard, is also part of a number, a, a group of influential Latino conservatives who came out last fall and said very explicitly that if Donald Trump doesn't change his rhetoric around immigration and Latinos, they are not going to mobilize for him. And these are the folks with the personal networks who've been relied on in the past to get out the Republican Hispanic vote. And indications at this point are they may sit this one out. Uh, that could really impact Republican efforts to uh, to get this community to support them in the long in the short term. And that's what Natividad described to me when I interviewed him recently. He's not going to work to help get Trump elected, at least at this point. He had this to say about how he'll vote. I told a friend of mine, get me the most expensive glass of bourbon on Election Day, and I will drink a glass of that, and I will vote Donald Trump. I see the difference between the footwork and the actual act of voting. What about the Democrats, Rachel? Well, they feel, given Trump's candidacy, that they're in a pretty good position. Um, The National Democratic Party wants to register more voters, as that environmental group that Megan talked about does as well. Um, So in some sense, they're also going for volume. The party will do mailers, phone calls. They'll go door to door in areas that are heavily Latino. Um, I'll note that the party has its first Latino in the position of national political director, and that's Raul Alvia. Uh, Alviar. Now, those seem like somewhat traditional ways to reach voters, you know, in person through uh, snail mail. Are they doing anything more high tech? Yes, I'm sure. And so is Hillary Clinton's campaign. Um, She's obviously the presumptive Democratic nominee for president. And she also has a Latina in charge of outreach. That's Emmy Ruiz um, in Colorado. She's Clinton's state director. Ruiz says they'll organize text messages she described as neighbor to neighbor. And this is Megan here. And I want to say that text messaging seems to be everybody's favorite hot thing right now in reaching the Latino vote. I heard this from multiple groups that uh, they think this is how they'll get millennial Latinos out to vote. And millennials are a very large proportion of the the voting population in the Latino community, larger than in other uh, groups, actually. Uh, Also, I think it's just becoming more okay to kind of get random text messages from organizations. So this might be the election where we see that form of communication really come into its own. Um, On the the new idea side, though, I did hear something from Federico Pena, the former Denver mayor, that I thought was kind of interesting. He's working with some other private individuals to develop a new approach to getting out the Latino vote, uh, kind of a a freelance mobilization effort. They want to put together a website where anyone can learn how to register voters and then uh, can look up and see whether or not their neighbors are registered to vote. The idea is you don't have to know the person. Just go knock on their door. And say, hi, Mr. So-and-so or Ms. So-and-so, have you, I know you're not registered to vote. I'd like to register to vote. I know how to do it. I have the forms and, and do it. So it's a whole new way of doing it. And it may not work, but I think we ought to try something different. That effort hasn't launched yet. And as you can tell, Pena is uh, pretty honest that it's quite an experimental approach. But he's been disappointed with Colorado's Latino political participation in the past and thinks it's time to try something new. Interesting. Crowdsourcing voter registration in Mm -hmm. some regards. So, Megan, where does this fit in? with the national landscape of those get-out-the-vote efforts? Well, there's been some really interesting coverage so far this election cycle on that. Uh, In particular, BuzzFeed had an article the other day arguing that at the national level, Latino get-out-the-vote efforts are off to a slow start this year, which is a little surprising when you think about how much the the issue of immigration has been a part of this campaign. Uh, That may be because the organizations that usually fund these efforts haven't been writing as many checks as usual. Uh, in part because there seems to be a debate going on over whether 
efforts to rally the Latino vote should be nonpartisan groups like Conservation Colorado or the, the biggie is Mi Familia Vota. They're very active in the state as well. Or whether they should start being more directly tied to the Democratic Party. Now, historically, liberal big money donors have put their support into these nonpartisan groups like Mi Familia Vota. Uh, but this year, uh, George Soros and others are shifting their money to back a new expressly uh, pro-democratic group called the Latino Victory Fund. So at the national level, there seems to be some confusion over the money, and that's slowing the, the start of this effort. Well, thanks to both of you for being with us. You're Thank welcome. Thank you, Ryan. That's CPR's Megan Verlee and Rachel Estabrook, who will continue to cover the Latino vote in Colorado throughout the election. And we'll be right back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The 14th Dalai Lama is venerated for his spiritual leadership and his messages of kindness. He also has some critics, and there have been discussions whether His Holiness could be the last Dalai Lama. Well, as he visits Boulder this week, we have asked Sidney Burris to join us. He co-founded the Tibetan in Exiles Today program. That's at the University of Arkansas. Burris also wrote a column called, Is This Dalai Lama the Last?, which ran in Newsweek. And Sidney, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, Ryan. I understand the first time you saw the Dalai Lama was in 1979 during his first visit to the U.S., and you say it left a lasting impression on you. What about him and what he said um, struck you? Well, uh, I was a young man at the time. Um, I was doing graduate work at the University of Virginia, and I was studying Sanskrit, the ancient language of India. And as a result of being in that, in that class, uh, I, was, I was invited to hear the Dalai Lama, and I knew very little about him at the time. Um, he spoke on the subject of death and dying, which, of course, is, um, I think, particularly here in the West, a very difficult topic to talk about it. Um, and I was prepared for uh, a rather somber, you know, presentation on that topic. Um, and 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 what I got was a, a funny and lighthearted and smart and intelligent um you know, 60-minute talk about uh, about what we need to do to, you know, prepare ourselves for a productive, um, you know, death. And, and and I had never, I had never heard anything like it in my life. And I just became fascinated with the man uh, and have continued to follow him, um, you know, since that time. And uh, Sydney, let me just say that I, I hear maybe just a little bit of the sound of your phone. Um, okay. So, um, uh, you have met His Holiness then several times since, and um, you actually brought him to the University of Arkansas in 2011. That's correct. What is he like one-on-one when he's not addressing the thousands of people who show up to see him? He um, He's like a very old friend. Um, he has, you know, absolutely no presumption about him. Um, he talks directly to you. Um, you get the impression that that he is listening to every single word you say without distraction. He never looks over your shoulder. He never looks to his left or his right. And it's like for the first time in your life, you come away from it thinking, I had been listened to. Hmm. You know, he, um, his focus, uh, I think, is for many of us a little bit unnerving at times because it is, you know, it is absolutely complete 
and focused. It's, it's, it's extraordinary. There are sort of two aspects to the Dalai Lama. There's what he represents to Tibetans and to many others spiritually, and there's what he has represented politically. And I, I just want to start with his religious role. What exactly is a Dalai Lama? You know, a title that, that these 13 others have had, too. Right. Um, well, he has traditionally been seen as the spiritual leader of the Tibetan people. Um, it's difficult for Westerners, I think, to understand, you know, accurately what um, he represents to the Tibetans. Um, I always I, I always quote the great Tibetanist Robert Thurman uh, at Columbia on this topic, who said, for Christians, um, it would be like imagining if Jesus Christ were continually reincarnated to be among his people and mm. give them advice about, about how to live, how to love, um, how to set up families. Um, you know, it, it's, uh, of course, when we're talking about Buddhism and Christianity, we're talking about two very different, you know, theological systems. So the comparison doesn't work exactly, but I think the veneration, um, is 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 comparable and 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 the amount of hope and optimism his holiness imparts to the tibetans i think is is um is something that we can relate to and and on to the political aspect i want to say that he largely stepped down from his political role in 2011 that's correct um briefly explain what he wanted in terms of governments for the Tibetan people. This was following, uh, you know, his exile to, right. to India um, after the Chinese government suppressed an uprising in Tibet. That's correct. Um, well, I was speaking a couple of years ago while I was in Dharamsala, India, to one of, um, he was a Tibetan, uh, a prominent Tibetan, and one of the Dalai Lama's harshest, you know, critics about his, uh, about the Dalai Lama's you know, sort of current policy with China. But he said to me, he said, you know, as Tibetans, we all know that the Dalai Lama handed us a democracy in India on a silver platter. And he said, we never forget that. So I think one of the Dalai Lama's central, central goals in coming into exile was to give his people a democracy. Uh, and when the Dalai Lama stepped down in, in 2011, I think, part of that, um, I think part of that had to do with the fact that, that he was getting older and he wanted to turn his attention to other matters besides the day-to-day political affairs of a government in exile. But I also think it was the next inevitable step in the Dalai Lama assuring that his people truly understood what a democracy is. It's not a theocracy, and even though the Tibetan people have such a deep reverence for the Dalai Lama, even his, even his harshest critics, I think the Dalai Lama said, now it's time as I get older for you to try and understand what it will be like to truly govern yourselves when I'm gone. So I think that's part of the reason he stepped down. Yeah, and it's important to say that as he was in exile, so were many of his people, of his followers. And so there was this opportunity to create a a sort of governance in exile. Um, In a statement on the Dalai Lama's website, um, His Holiness indeed said that part of the decision behind this political retirement was that it was simply time. 
You mentioned his his critics. There is a group of of Buddhists that has fiercely protested the Dalai Lama. Very briefly, who who are they and why do they oppose him? Um, they do a Buddhist practice that uh, is devoted to uh, a Tibetan a Tibetan deity called Shugden, a protector deity. Uh, it's a very it's a very old practice. Um, but since the time of the fifth, the, the fifth Dalai Lama in the 17th century, all the way through the 14th, um, the Dalai Lamas have discouraged Tibetans from doing a Shugden practice because it has traditionally been seen as sectarian. Uh, one of the things the Dalai Lamas uh, have attempted to do is is to make certain that 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 no matter which particular Tibetan Buddhist practice a Tibetan person undertakes, to have respect for all of the other ways of doing Tibetan Buddhism, um, and and the idea has been that the Shugden practitioners uh, have not held to that sort of you know ecumenical principle. And for that reason, the Dalai Lama has discouraged Tibetans from practicing it. Contrary to what you often hear, he has not forbidden it, um, but he has said he discourages it. And in fact, uh, at the largest Tibetan Buddhist monastery in South India, um, there are two, you know, Shugden temples down there and two sort of, you know, Shugden Shugden monasteries um, that are that are included. With the other monasteries down there, and the Shug- and the Shugden practitioners have all the rights and privileges um, of all of you know that all the other Tibetan monks and nuns have there. So he has not forbidden it, but he has discouraged it. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and with the Dalai Lama's visit to Boulder this week, we're speaking with Sidney Burris by phone. He co-founded the University of Arkansas's Tibetans in Exile Today program, and he actually helped bring the Dalai Lama to his campus some years ago. There's a complicated history surrounding the process to select the next Dalai Lama, correct? That yes, yeah. very complicated. And you have and you have meditated on this idea of whether the current could be the last. Well, yeah, I, yeah, meditation might be a little bit of a strong term, but I've considered it. <laughs> All right. <laughs> um, yeah, it, uh, my personal opinion is that is that there will certainly be a fifteenth Dalai Lama. Um, I can I can say without exception that every Tibetan that I have spoken with in India over the past well since two thousand seven. Um, is absolutely certain that there will be a 15th Dalai Lama. Um, of course, the Dalai Lama himself has said he leaves that up to the Tibetan people. Uh, again, I think that's another step in, in, the Dalai Lama's, in the Dalai Lama's attempt, you know, fully to give the Tibetan people a democracy. The, um, he says, if you want a Dalai Lama, then you can come uh, and find my reincarnation. If, if you happen to decide that, uh, that it would not be useful to have a Dalai Lama, then I honor that decision. 
So, I mean, I think he's just trying to fully democratize, you know, the Tibetan people. And, of course, there's always the Chinese component that he has to deal with. Exactly. The, the political pressure that the next Dalai Lama would face and um, right. to what extent he wants that to continue. Um, just briefly, what does the Dalai Lama mean to those who are beyond Tibet and beyond Buddhism? Because he's, he's really become a symbol well beyond the community. Yes, he has. Um, from the time he arrived um, in India, or shortly thereafter, 1959, he began to say that, that he had three goals uh, as, he, as he was building a life in exile. And the first one, the first goal from the beginning has been simply to promote human values. Um, and those human values he, he typically articulates, and he will probably do that you know, tomorrow when he comes to Colorado, yeah. are, are values like compassion and forgiveness and tolerance and contentment. Uh, he, he has made a very concerted effort to draw a distinction between a person's religion and their spirituality. And he tends to locate the human values in the arena of spirituality, thereby sidestepping religious difference. Mm -hmm. And I think that accounts for his popularity because... He's one of the few spiritual leaders of the world that can talk to 12,000 people, uh, as he did here at Arkansas, um, a group that had, that had every, every religious denomination you can imagine, including you know, atheists and, uh, and yeah. agnostics, yeah. and offend no one. Sidney, thanks for being with us. My pleasure. Sidney Burris and his chair... Uh, Burris co-founded the University of Arkansas's Tibetans in Exile Today program. The Dalai Lama is at CU Boulder tomorrow. He'll lecture on integrating ethics and empathy into daily life. The talks will be live-streamed. There's a link at cprnews.org. There you can also listen to our interviews from yesterday about Buddhism in Colorado in particular. This is CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Marijuana is legal if you're 21 or over, so juveniles are coming to dominate marijuana arrests in Colorado. As CPR's Ben Marcus reports, arrests of young blacks and Latinos have risen dramatically. Courtroom 4F in Denver is where most young offenders must explain themselves to a judge. In the hallway, Ricky Montoya didn't look phased by the judge's order that he pay a $1,000 fine for his third marijuana possession offense. Nor was he shocked to learn that police are increasingly citing and arresting Latinos like him. Well, yeah, they, they probably look at us more different. Like, they probably think that. Because, like, I don't think they think that white people would smoke as much as we do. In fact, a Colorado Health Department survey found there wasn't a huge racial difference in who smokes pot, yet the arrest rate for white kids is falling, while the black and Latino arrest rate is rising. That was evident at the courthouse, where the judge heard a dozen cases before noon, and only one involved a white kid. And that, that needs to stop. Brian Vicente led the marijuana legalization movement in Colorado. That is, I think, a large part of the reason Colorado voters passed legalizations. They're, they're tired of the sort of racist legacy of the drug war. 
Vicente says it's shameful that local police have shifted their attention to minority kids. But outside Denver Police Headquarters, spokesman Sonny Jackson rejects the idea that they are targeting black and Latino juveniles for pot offenses. And in most of these cases uh, are complaint-driven. Uh, we, we get a complaint from someone. We're not sure where it's going to take us, but we have to act on it. And we're not sure if I get a call to a residence or to a location who I'm going to encounter until I get there. Jackson points out that while juvenile arrests may be up for minorities, arrests for adults of all racial groups have been cut in half since legalization. And he emphasizes that marijuana is a low priority for the department. Keith Humphreys, who studies drug policy at Stanford, says in general, police departments don't explicitly target racial groups. But the fact is, pot is illegal for kids. So police have to do something when they encounter it. And police do patrol more in neighborhoods of color. Uh, They also get more calls to uh, respond in neighborhoods of color. And Humphreys theorizes that the marijuana businesses themselves may actually be playing a role in who gets arrested. The emerging uh, legal marijuana industry is overwhelmingly white-owned and white-dominated and provides good access to white customers. So one possibility is that that leaves the illegal market Uh, disproportionately composed of people of color, both the buyers and the sellers. That's an issue that touches Wanda James, who owns the Simply Pure Dispensary in the gentrified neighborhood of Highlands in Denver. As a black woman, she is an anomaly in the industry, and news that minorities are being arrested at higher rates for marijuana offenses makes her angry. Because I sit here every day in my dispensary, and you can hear my receptionist speaking now. We're busy. You hear those little bells going off? People are walking in here right now. We are selling a ton of cannabis today. And most of her customers are white. But she makes sure to point out that this is not just a Colorado or Denver problem. There is not a major major city. There is not a major city, small town, rural county, city county, outskirts, beach community that does not have this exact same problem where they're arresting and targeting people of color. So despite the benefits of legalization, whether it's safe access to pot or increased tax revenue, it hasn't solved the intractable issue of race in America's war on drugs. I'm Ben Marcus, CPR News. Denver girl turned spy turned satirist. That's how Alex Finley introduced herself to me over email, pitching her new book, Victor in the Rubble. Spy and satirist is a pretty irresistible combination, so I cracked open the book and found myself laughing a lot. The thing is, she lampoons a very serious topic, the so-called war on terrorism. She is a former CIA officer who served in West Africa and Europe. And uh, Alex Finley, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. How can you make fun of something as serious as terrorism? Yeah, I get that question often. I think, first of all, it's my way of just dealing with some of it. I think there's ridiculousness in everything. So satire was a great way for me to find the absurdity in what I was experiencing every day, watching this war on terror from behind the scenes, and um, finding a way to poke fun at the parts that were actually pretty ridiculous and help us sort of cope to get through it. And when I sat down to write the book, I really wanted actually to write something funny because I think we've all suffered for so many years at this point. It's a difficult topic, like you said. Um, yeah, but satire is a great tool to to find the absurdity. To find the absurdity, and I guess it's catharsis too, because in the acknowledgments you say that this began as catharsis for you. 
It did, absolutely. Um, I joined the agency at a very strange time. We were about 18. I joined in early 2003. So we were just out of 9-11 and just about to invade Iraq for the weapons of mass destruction. And so everything was changing, and it was a very strange time, and there was new bureaucracy being created, and the agency was being blamed for a lot of what was happening with our foreign policy. So it was a difficult time on the inside, and I think people were suffering because of this. And um, when I left, I did. I sort of needed to get out some of that... um, trauma that had sort of come on me from being part of that community. Yeah, trauma like what? Well, it's hard every day to go in and be reading threats against your country in places where you are or where you know people. I mean, it's a constant thing, right? Even on the outside, if you have uh, certain news outlets or, you know, listening to the certain places, you're hearing fear all the time, right? And I think on the inside, it's a lot of that, except you know <laughs> what you're getting, what parts are true and what parts are not true. Yeah, but you're must, much more personally connected uh, because you have friends and colleagues in theater. Um, you often find humor in the bureaucracy. That's where a lot of the laughs in this book come from. Um, at one point, your main character, a counterterrorism officer named Victor, sits in a chair and his his <laughs> boss points out that it's a chair meant for someone who's at a different pay level in government. It's a violation of policy for him to sit in this chair, at which point Victor realizes just how comfy that chair is <laughs> when it's out of his grasp. Did you run into things like that at the CIA? Of course. I mean, <laughs> I, I again, I, I have to stress that the book is fiction uh-huh. uh, because I have to put it through a review. And uh, so it's definitely... With the CIA? With the CIA, They yes. had to approve this? Of course. Yeah, that's part of my secrecy agreement. Um, So everything I write that has to do with the CIA goes through them. Uh, So I wanted definitely to write fiction to make sure I could get get out there what I wanted to get out and hit on the topics I wanted to hit on without the censors uh, using their black highlighter pens on me. Um, But everything in the book comes from somewhere. And it was the bureaucracy that was making me so frustrated. Um, Can you give us an example from your time at the CIA, or is that not information you can reveal? So I can't tell again what was true and what was false, but I will say things like the chair, they grow out of very true experiences. And I'll let the reader sort of try to figure out what they think is real and what's not. Well, you also explore bureaucracy on the enemy, the terrorists' side. Uh, A fundamental question that you wondered is, Do terrorists have to fill out paperwork? Right. Well, the whole thing actually started when I was in a station at one point and something blew up. We were watching on the news when something had blown up and we were all standing there watching it. And the chief of station came out and went over to a guy in the office who at that point was a 12-year veteran of the counterterrorist center, a case officer with the counterterrorism center. And the chief of station said to him, why haven't you filled out your agency employee satisfaction form yet? And here we are watching something that had just blown up halfway around the world. And the guy said to the COS, the terrorists aren't filling out any forms. He used bad words when he said it. Uh-huh. But, and I sat on the side and I said, well, that's actually kind of funny. What if the, bureau, uh, what if the terrorists did have to fill out forms? And I do think there's a notion on the outside that the CIA is unleashed, unbridled, free to wreak havoc however they want. But really, 
uh, the officers really are held down by a, a legal infrastructure and by this bureaucracy, the system that's in place. So I said, well, what if we place that on the terrorists and let them go through this bureaucracy and let's see what happens. How that plays out. Yep. Tell us just a bit more about your main character, Victor. Um, he's stationed in the fictional country of Pigallo, which is, a, as you imagine it, a former Italian colony in West Africa. Yes. So Victor is um, a conglomeration of a number of people that I met along the way. Some of the experiences that he has are similar to things that I experienced myself. But it was a lot of listening to my friends and their frustrations and gathering anecdotes over the years of things that happened and rolling them all into one character. And Victor proved a very good tool to uh, demonstrate a lot of the bureaucratic absurdities that that people go through. Yeah. Describe how he sees or meets the, the CIA. What What is his perception of the agency? I think he's a really hardworking officer and he desperately wants to do the right thing. Um, but he finds a number of people in higher up positions who are trying to stop him from doing what he thinks is right. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with Alex Finley, who was with the CIA and has turned to satire. Her new book is called Victor in the Rubble, and Finley grew up in Denver. And I understand that uh, your high school experience here in large part shaped your sense of the world and your wanting to be a part of it. Um, I gather this is around the Cold War you know, and when it was ending in the late 80s, early 90s, the wall falling. How, how much did that play a role in your interest? That was definitely a big thing. My senior year of high school, I was very lucky to have a great teacher um, who did an independent study with a number of us and did a national security class. He got us each our own copy of the New York Times, and we were each assigned a country in Eastern Europe to follow as the wall fell. And it was 1989, 1990. It really was the year that everything was changing. Do you remember what country you were assigned? I had Bulgaria. Bulgaria? Yeah. All right. <laughs> to, see, to see how the, the, the fall of communism would play out there. Yes, and mm. how that was going to affect us and, and the rest of the world. The, the entire chessboard was changing, and it was a fascinating time to be introduced to the subject and to have a great teacher introducing me to it who really got me interested and around that same time, I understand you hosted Russians in your home in Colorado. Yes. So my parents have been always very involved in the community here in Denver and in Colorado. And they had the opportunity to do an exchange. So in the summer of 1989, they went to Russia for a number of weeks. And it might be hard for people who were not of age at that time to understand what a big deal that, that was, was. It was a very big yeah. deal. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, especially here, having grown up in Colorado, I mean, I remember my brother and I watching Red Dawn, you know, or, uh, you know, being raised thinking in this age of uh, mutually assured destruction, that when the bomb came, NORAD down in Colorado Springs was going to be the first thing to go. And, and the notion of traveling to Russia would have just it seemed just, so foreign. It was a strange thing. And then hosting Russians here. <laughs> and then the next thing I know, my parents are like, we're having Russians for dinner. Like, okay. So I had grown up thinking this is this, you know, this evil sort of a empire. And here I am having dinner with these very nice people who were teaching me that they're nice humans all over the world. And we all have 
we all have the same wants in the end. A very different kind of invasion from the one Red Dawn exactly. portrayed <laughs> that you'd seen. So um, once you have, have worked in intelligence, do you ever kind of leave the profession entirely or is there always a part of you that, that remains a spy? I think there are certain skills that you acquire or develop while you're doing that, especially living overseas quite a bit, so that you're much more in tune to things that go on around you. I think that that sticks with you. You become very observant. And I would like to think that that serves me now as I'm trying to build a writing career. Um, Watching people and observing how they are and how they interact can help you build up stories. And also, of course, building up aliases and working in a covert environment, you're you're building stories. That's what you're doing. So there's not too much difference between what I was doing. Not a leap to go from spy to satirist in that <laughs> case. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. I appreciate it. Denver native Alex Finley is a spy turned satirist. Her new book is called Victor in the Rubble. And she'll celebrate its release Friday evening at the Denver restaurant Beatrice and Woodsley. That's Colorado Matters for today. I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for spending time with us.